Get ready to embark on a tranquil journey through enchanting narratives. Welcome to a world of soothing dreams. Welcome to Bibbic's Bedtime Stories. Hi, this is Orion, and you're listening to Orion's Bedtime Stories podcast. While I have a number of short stories and fairy tales here, for the next little while, I'll be sharing a large chapter book with you. Illusion by Paula Volsky. For 200 years, the exalted classes have ruled over Vonar by virtue of their dazzling magical abilities. Now, their powers grown slack from disuse, they concentrate on the pleasures their station affords them, ignoring the misery of the lower classes. It is only when the red tide of revolution sweeps aside all distinctions of rank, home, and family that the exalted realize the gravity of their mistake. Thrust into the very center of the conflict is the beautiful Elise Faux de Raval, spirited daughter of a provincial landowner. Now, like those she disdained, she must scramble for bread in the teeming streets of the capital city, the key to her abilities and elusive secret, and find a way to survive in a world gone mad with liberty. Illusion by Paula Volsky, Chapter 10 the stretch of walkway beneath the overhang of the sorriest old tenement on Aether Street in the 8th District belonged to Crone Placey. For the space of two years, no small period by the standards of her kind, she had occupied that territory. Come rain or shine, come snow or blasting heat, Crone Placey was always there with her begging box daubed in garish colors, her hoarse croaking songs and verses, her interesting sores. Very occasionally, the exigencies of illness or childbirth enforced her absence. Where she repaired upon such occasions, no one knew, and where she slept each night remained a matter of indifferent mystery. But every morning found Crone Placey ensconced in her accustomed archway, and every pedestrian encountered her outstretched palm. Pickings were surprisingly good. An amateur might have supported that the wealthy, glistering sections of town, the environs of the Biviere, the Parabo, and other such choice locations, would yield the best returns, but such was not the case. The aristocrats of the Parabo had mastered the art of selective blindness. They could walk within inches of Crone Placey, apparently unconscious of her existence. This was not the talent, however, of the 8th District scum, who displayed a peculiar vulnerability to pleas, accusations, and reproaches. They gave, and the accumulated weight of their contributions far outweighed the silent contempt of the exalted. In the slums of the 8th District, Crone Placey found livelihood, meager and grudging, but it served. Scanty gray hair, toothless gums, sunken colorless cheeks, and a bent shrunken figure had earned her the title of Crone. A misnomer, for the apparent Beldam was no more than 34 years old. 
disease, chronic malnutrition, and repeated childbirth had aged her prematurely. But Placey did not regret the dilapidated aspect that served her as an invaluable professional asset. Nor did she lament the unremitting hardship of her life. Tedium occasionally troubled her, but not lately. In recent weeks, the unusual activity centering about the old house directly across the street from her stretch of walkway had engaged her close attention. The house, a run-down anonymous edifice owned by one Madame Herreau, attracted too many visitors, far more than its undistinguished heirs seemed to warrant. Most of the strangers were youthful, shabby, and nondescript, students perhaps, but several were well-dressed and prosperous-looking, men of consequence, clearly out of place in the 8th district. Noting this, Crone Placey kept her eyes open, and her vigilance was rewarded. She saw that they came and went, generally by way of the back door, at all hours of the day and night, in an unobtrusive trickle easily overlooked by all save an attentive observer. Unable to fathom the establishment's appeal, she first suspected the existence of a new brothel, whose extreme discretion obviated necessity of payment to the local gendarmerie. Continued surveillance soon convinced her otherwise, for she spied neither women nor adolescent boys upon the premises. Was it the meeting house of an anarchist gang? Birthplace of a new religious cult? Den of gentlemen thieves? No obvious answer presented itself, and Crone Placey's interest sharpened. The days passed, the mysterious comings and goings continued, and her idle curiosity waxed obsessive, eventually overcoming the ingrained caution of a lifetime. It happened on a mild autumn night, when the Crone's interest was once again arrested by anomaly. This time, by the arrival of a trio of strangers, slouch-hatted, muffler-swathed, faces deliberately obscured. One of them carried a bundle under his arm. Madame Hero's collars often bore such bundles, and although the house appeared entirely dark, the men were admitted at once, as if their arrival were expected. The door closed behind them, and all was as before. Sudden impulse overcame Crone Placey. Despite her apparent infirmity, she could move with speed and agility when she chose. Now, rising from her place, she stepped from the archway and glided across Aether Street like a tattered ghost. Around the corner of the Haru dwelling she stole, down the tiny alley that ran between the house and its nearest neighbor, and there at the rear of the building, dim and completely invisible from the street, she spied a faint line of weak light glowing through a chink in the barred shutters of a ground-story window. The aura of secrecy was alluring as the clink of stolen coins. Creeping silently near, Crone Placey applied her eye to the chink. The scene she beheld was neither striking nor particularly revealing. A half-dozen men and one woman sat around a wooden table in a small, plain, sparsely furnished chamber, located behind the kitchen and probably designed for storage. A commonplace room, commonplace occupants. The woman, raw-boned and lantern-jawed, was Madame Hero. 
the men were strangers. Spread out on the table before them were papers, pamphlets, tracts, something of the sort, and of no interest whatever. One of the men was reading in a low voice. Crone Plazy could not make out the words, nor did she much care to. It was distinctly disappointing. She had expected to witness secret rites, colorful abominations, criminals gloating over some illicit treasure trove, and all she got was tedious, dry literature. She might have spared herself the trouble. And yet, the visitors desired secrecy, and they must have their reasons. Might they not be fugitives, hunted by the gendarmerie? Frowning, she surveyed them in turn. The Haru woman was not important, scarcely worth a glance. And the six men? She knew none of them, and yet her eyes lingered on the reader. He was middle-aged, plainly dressed, graying, ascetically nondescript, not at all impressive, not with that shabby old jacket of his, certainly nobody important. And yet, and yet, her memory rattled. Had she not seen that face somewhere or other? Had she not at least seen a drawing of that face? Certainly she had. How could she miss it when the broadsides bearing his likeness and description were posted all over Shireen? The gendarmerie and even the royal guards were all of them hunting for Master Shorvi Nirien. So eager were they to silence the renegade Republican lawyer that they were offering a reward for information leading to his capture. An impressively generous reward. Crone Plazy paused to consider her options. She had no interest in Nirien, and his capture was a matter of indifference to her. That being so, she had only to yield up her new information to the nearest official, collect the promised reward, and her comfort was assured for the next year or more. Such a move, however, could not be accomplished in true secrecy. Assuming that the authorities could be depended upon to honor their pledge, always a large assumption, the news of her windfall would inevitably reach the ears of the fungus, who would then demand his customary 20%. She would have to pay him, too, else varied and colorful misfortune would ensue. The fungus and his 20% might perhaps be circumvented by applying directly to Nerian himself. Properly approached, the fugitive might well consent to buy her silence by equaling or besting the gendarmerie's offer, and, of course, the fungus would never hear about it. The trouble there was that Nerian might easily conclude that his own safety necessitated Crone Plazy's permanent removal, in which case neither the fungus nor the gendarmerie would be there to protect her. No, all things considered, excessive cupidity was worse than imprudent. It was downright suicidal. This thought in mind, Crone Plazy set off at a smart trot, heading for the makeshift headquarters that, in the wake of the destruction of the 8th District Station House, the gendarmes had set up a rented hovel some blocks distant. Shorvi Nirien had reached the penultimate page of the newly completed essay that he was reading aloud when a light tapping sounded at the window. Nirien's reading cut off in mid-sentence, and he sat expressionlessly still. Not so his companions. Dakel and Beck, the two youngest and tallest men present rose simultaneously from their chairs. Dekel took up the heavy walking stick that he didn't need for support 
while a pistol materialized in Beck's hand. Motionless silence for an instant, and then the tapping resumed, knocks and pauses alternating in a quick, distinctive sequence familiar to all. Stepping to the window, Decal eased the shutter open to confront an agitated sentry. The young man, one of the several Nerianistas stationed about the 8th district, was winded and panting. Gendarmes, eight or ten, the newcomer spoke in a breathless whisper. Beggar woman from across the street leading him straight to us. Someone should have blinded that flea-bitten hag. It was an oversight, Dekal found time to observe. You and the boys delay them if you can, while we disappear Shorvi. And if either street's already blocked. Right, the other then. The sentry's head jerked in response, and he departed. Dekel closed and barred the shutters, then, meeting Beck's eyes, inquired, And? Quite ready, Beck affirmed. Turning to Nirian, he said, Your escape route's prepared. Come, I'll show you. Commendable efficiency, gentlemen. Nirian was already gathering up the last of his writings. Task completed, he rose pale but unruffled. Before I go, I wish to thank you all and to issue one final request. Do not, I implore you, subject yourselves to any further risks in my behalf. There's been too much of that already. Don't hinder, thwart, or antagonize the gendarmes. Assist them, or appear to do so, and they'll have no reason to question your good faith. He paused, but there was no answer. The still faces of his comrades reflected a quiet, impenetrable obstinacy. To the garret, sir, Beck suggested politely. Quit jawing and go along, Shorvi, Madame Heroux urged less politely. We'll look to our business, never fear. You just mind your own. Nerian didn't budge. Let us understand each other. You must promise your consent to this, or I won't leave you. Shorvi, you don't know what you're... One of the men began excitedly. Madame Heroux silenced her red-faced compatriot with a gesture. Brows arched and lips pursed. She surveyed her guests in turn. Speaking glances were exchanged, and Madame turned back to Nirien. Promise, she conceded meekly. A dutiful, submissive muttering ran around the table. Nirien regarded his disciples with suspicion. They met his narrowed gaze blandly. Madame Haru noted with satisfaction her guest's uncertainty. You don't have time to stand and chatter, she told him. Sharvi, will you get out of here? Dekel begged. The garret, Beck repeated, and Sharvi Nirian permitted himself to be led away. Up four flights of stairs, he trailed Beck up to the airless, slant-ceilinged attic wherein he had spent the past nerve-strung but productive months. Past the rickety desk at which he had so often sat far into the night, quill in hand, cudgeling his mind for the thoughts and the words for his thoughts, pausing only long enough to grab the packed satchel that always lay beneath the bed, he hurried to open the dormer window. Beck was already halfway out, folding his long limbs through the small casement with the ease of a circus acrobat. He was out. Nerian passed the satchel through, then followed reluctantly in his companion's wake. For a moment, he teetered upon the sill, and a hand took his arm firmly and drew him out onto the ledge. 
Shurvinirian unwisely looked down to behold the cobbled street, peopled with purposeful gendarmes and inquisitive pedestrians much too far below him. His flesh crawled and he wobbled. Vertigo sent the world spinning and he grabbed at the window frame. He clung there, gasping, suddenly soaked in icy sweat, and then the steadying hand was back at his elbow. Breathe deeply, Beck's voice fell coolly, nonchalantly upon his ringing ears. It will soon pass. There is no hint whatever of the urgency that must surely have gnawed like a wolf at the young man's nerves. Even in the midst of his misery, Shorvinirian could almost smile at such perfection of Singfoy. He breathed deeply as directed, and sure enough, his giddiness subsided. When he ventured to open his eyes, he did not look down again, and the view at eye level was far more to his liking. Ice-colored moonlight bathed an eccentric landscape of rooftops, chimneys, gables, and dormers. Here and there, the lanterns glowed at the windows, amber light warming tiled peaks and valleys. Occasionally, the odd spire or crumbling cupola thrust itself above its neighbors, but these were scarcely noticeable, for but a few streets away rose an enormous structure that dwarfed them all. Massive dark bulk picked out with a few pinpoint lights. The sepulchre prison dominated the skyline. It was across this angular wilderness that Beck had plotted his emergency escape route. Ready, Nirian announced quietly. With visible effort, he relinquished his death grip on the casement. Excellent. This way. Beck moved off along the ledge. Intestines nodding, Nirian forced himself to follow. On his right, the roof sloped sharply away. On the left, the building dropped sheer as a precipice to the street some fifty feet below, where the gendarmes already stood at Madame Hero's door. Instinctively, he spread his arms for balance. The ledge, though nearly as wide as the makeshift single-plank bridges that sometimes spanned rural brooks, seemed precarious as a tightrope, and at times he even imagined that it trembled like a rope beneath him. Around the corner of the house they edged sideways to encounter a featureless brick wall rising straight and unclimbable athwart their path. At the base of the wall, the ledge terminated. To the left, a neighboring house presented a chipped and peeling cornice. The distance from ledge to cornice was not great, a matter of some five or six feet, and Beck jumped it easily, heedless of the chasm gaping beneath him. Ensconced upon the neighboring cornice, he beckoned. Nerian silently prayed that the pale moonlight camouflaged his terror. He didn't dare hesitate. If he stopped to think, he would never do it. Above all, he must not look down. He took a great thirsty gulp of air. Images of his wife, his son, his young daughter, all safely hidden away in a remote Girundi village, clicked into his mind, and he wondered once more, as he had so often wondered, if he would ever see them again. Then, dry-mouthed and white-faced, graying hair plastered to his wet forehead, Nerian launched his middle-aged and sedentary body into space. He actually jumped too far, 
hurtling heavily against the brick face of the opposing building. Had it not been for Beck's quick, steadying hand, he might have rebounded clear off the cornice. He paused for a moment, leaning all his weight against the wall. Gradually, his pounding heart slowed, his breath evened, and he looked around to find himself safely clear of the Haru dwelling. Beck moved on, eyes scanning the brick wall on his left side. Soon he found what he sought, and then, to his companion's astonishment, began to climb. Narian looked closely and discovered a row of chiseled indented toeholds, together with several short, stout spikes sunk into the mortar. How Beck had managed to place them without attracting the resident's attention was not clear. Beyond doubt, he was a resourceful one. Narian followed his guide, boosting himself from spike to spike, and found the ascent unexpectedly easy. Fifteen feet straight up, and then they hauled themselves onto the roof, where Narian rested briefly, puffing a little. His rising confidence suffered a setback when they reached the far side of the building, there to encounter a gap some ten feet in width separating them from their nearest neighbor impossible to jump such a distance from a standing start. Anirian glanced questioningly at his companion. Wedged in between the chimney and the angle of the roof lay a plank, perhaps fifteen feet long, obviously one of Beck's provisions. Now lifting the wooden length from its resting place and working with the efficiency born of practice, Beck spanned the gap. The plank, stretching from roof to roof, was easily wide enough to walk on, as the young man demonstrated by his effortless crossing. This accomplished, he knelt to steady the bridge for his companion. Nerian scuttled across the gap. Immediately, Beck dismantled the bridge, thrusting the plank out of sight behind the nearest chimney. No sign of the gendarmes, no hint of pursuit. Nerian caught the angry sound of shouting a street or two away, perhaps in either street, Perhaps it meant nothing. The cries of the 8th District were incessant and generally inconsequential. On they toiled across the rooftops, often stepping from building to building, but sometimes obliged to pass by way of Beck's improvised bridges. Eight or more times they crossed the man-made chasms, then hurried across a leaden plain of flat roofing to the edge of a building, where a seemingly careless scattering of debris concealed a small canvas tarpaulin weighed down with bricks. Beneath the tarpaulin lay a rope ladder, which Beck hitched to a low iron guardrail. The two free ends of rope were very long, dangling within six feet of the ground. The ladder itself touched the cobbles below. Over the railing, Beck swung himself smoothly, feet discovering the wooden rungs without, without fumbling. Nerian followed, less confidently, and the two began to descend. Minutes later, they stood once more on solid ground, in a dark, reeking wind some half a mile from the Huru residence. Gathering the two free rope ends in one hand, Beck jerked sharply, releasing the hitches that bound ladder to guardrail. The ladder tumbled to the ground at his feet. Swiftly coiling rope and rungs, he stowed the bundle beneath a mound of refuse, doubtless heaped in that particular spot by design. The wind was deserted. Beck had plotted their route well. 
nor had he reached the limit of his resources, for now he proceeded to lead his charge through a dark, twisting maze of alleys and walkways, weaving expertly among the tenements and taverns, laying a trail certain to confound pursuit. The two quiet, plainly dressed men walking the 8th District Warren attracted little notice and less curiosity. Within minutes, they had reached Duck Row, a small cul-de-sac lined with old houses, once comfortably middle class and even now unusually neat and respectable by 8th District standards. Beck went straight to number 11, knocked discreetly, and waited. A very brief flash of light from a peephole, then the door opened. A tiny, ancient, and wizened man admitted them. Behind him in the dim hallway stood an equally tiny, ancient, and wizened woman. Both appeared frail, delicate, insubstantial to the point of weightlessness, a pair of human cobwebs. Their eyes were identically vague and watery, pale as drowned silver, and Nirian experienced a moment's misgiving. Were these two relics altogether aware? I've brought you a present, Beck announced. Good lad, Rose got too hot, eh? It was bound to happen, the male cobweb piped in tones thin and reedy but perfectly assured, and all of a sudden Nerian wondered how he could possibly have missed the shrewdness in the drowned silver eyes. Master Shorvi Nerian, allow me to present Master Owen Belaud and his sister, Mistress Owen Belaud, said Beck. The most ardent of all Nerianistas, Owen readed. And the most venerable, piped Owen, voice thin and tweeting as her brothers. The most tenacious, most loyal, most selflessly dedicated, and the most indescribably cunning. We welcome you to your new lodgings. While Shorvi Nirian and his guide navigated the rooftops of the 8th District, events of note transpired below. Within minutes of the sentry's warning, imperative hammering shook the front door of the Huru dwelling. Evidently, the random Nerianistas out on the street had not managed to delay the gendarmes' arrival in the slightest. Madame Huru allowed the pounding to continue for as long as she dared. When she judged they were about ready to break down the door, she opened it. Eight gendarmes glared upon the threshold. The studied tardiness of her response had nettled them. When the commanding sergeant spoke, his tone was peremptory, almost bullying. We're here for Nerian. Huh? inquired Madame, puzzled. Get out of the way, he made for the door. Oh, no, you don't. Bracing her arms against the jam, she barred the way. My lodgers are mostly asleep, and I won't have your goons clod-hopping through to shake them up. I won't have my place getting a bad name on your account. We've heard that Chorvinirian's in this house. That lawyer ninny everyone's dithering about. Here? Don't play dumb. We know about you. The word's out on you. Someone's playing you for a fool. Then you won't mind us looking around. Think again. Anyway, you can't come in here without a, what do you call it, a warrant or a certificate or something. You got a paper? Could you read it if I did, Countess Slops? <laughs> the sergeant produced a bark of humorless laughter. Now, 
Get out of the way. Kiss my ass, Madame suggested. Not troubling to reply, he thrust her aside. Instantly, she was back again to block his path, and when he lifted his hand to strike, she hiked up her skirt and kicked his kneecap with all her considerable strength. The sergeant uttered a yell of pain and rage. Doubling his fist, he swung at her, knocking her backward into the hall. She staggered, recovered, and flung herself on him with a yowl of a furious cat. For a few moments, all was a blur of snapping teeth and raking nails, flying fists and feet. The sergeant grunted explosively as her fist slammed into his belly. Her knee jabbed at his groin, and he twisted to avoid it. A V-shaped pair of rigid fingers drove viciously for his eyes, and he managed to catch her wrist barely in time. Twisting the imprisoned arm behind her back, he neatly forced her to her knees. Her struggles subsided, but her outcry did not, and the noise attracted attention. A curious crowd gathered swiftly. You crazy bitch, you're under arrest, the sergeant informed her. She spat expressively as he clamped a pair of manacles on her wrists. Dragging the prisoner to her feet, he swung her against the wall. You two, the sergeant addressed a couple of his men. Keep an eye on her and guard the door. The rest, follow me. As they entered the house, Madame Haru lifted her voice in a tremendous shout, Dekel! Dekel! The four remaining Nerianistes burst from the kitchen, out into the dim corridor. Crash of the door, thunder of footsteps on uncarpeted floorboards. The sudden appearance of four silhouetted figures rattled the gendarmes, whose confidence had been badly shaken by the massacre of their 8th District compatriots months earlier. Nerian's yelling partisans bounded forward. One of the soldiers, thoroughly unnerved, leveled his weapon and fired. A Nerianista fell dead. Another shot, almost simultaneous, and a second victim went down. The two surviving Nerianistas froze for a horrified instant, then turned tail and ran. One dashed for the darkened stairway. A bullet in the back dropped him before he reached it. The last survivor, Dekel, ducked into the kitchen, slamming the door behind him, then sprinted for the back room and its exit into the refuse-heaped patch of bare dirt that passed for a garden. Throwing the bolt and flinging aside, flinging wide the door, he jumped through, almost into the arms of a couple of gendarmes stationed at the rear of the house. Hearing the shots within, they did not hesitate to fire, and Dekel fell fatally pierced. The slaughter was accomplished within seconds. The sergeant did not stop to think about it. Dispatching a couple of subordinates reared to confirm the fate of the last fugitive, he led his remaining men up the stairs to conduct a search, painstaking but fruitless. When they came at last to the garret, with its signs of recent tenancy, it occurred to the sergeant to check the window as a possible means of exit. One of his men climbed through the dormer, surveyed the ledge and rooftops, and, never suspecting the existence of Beck's all-but-invisible spikes and toeholds sunk in the wall of the neighboring tenement, returned to report the impossibility of escape by that route. That Chorvinirien had lately occupied the premises seemed probable. That he had successfully effected his escape this time was unquestionable. No doubt he would surface again before long,
but for now he had quite eluded the hunters. In the meantime, four possibly unarmed corpses, whose deaths the sergeant must justify to his commander, lay below. An utterly uncooperative prisoner, against whom nothing beyond disorderly conduct could be proved, awaited questioning, while a hostile, fiercely inquisitive crowd loitered muttering in the street. In short, a wretched muddle. The sergeant was cursing under his breath as he descended to regroup his men. The curses expired upon his lips as he exited the house. For a moment he stood staring, unpleasantly startled. During the few brief minutes that he had spent searching the premises, the crowd outside had swollen to alarming proportions. The neighborhood residents, instinctively cognizant of violent death in their midst, had converged upon the Haru dwelling by the hundreds, perhaps by the thousands. Aether Street was packed with spectators, jammed together shoulder to shoulder, pressing and straining for a glimpse of the latest neighborhood horror. Overwhelmingly curious, yet peculiarly quiet, lantern light illuminated a sea of still faces, a glittering of intent eyes. In the view of the multitude gathered here, there was surprisingly little noise, no shouted insults, no complaints, jibes, accusations, or taunting yelps. The sergeant would have preferred such familiar and comprehensible commotion to the almost eerie restraint that now confronted him. It was not the quiet of tranquility, nor indifference, nor yet of resignation, but rather a tight-strung, quivering, black tension, alive and charged with predatory expectation. Underlying that dark intensity, feeding and fed in turn, there was hatred, uncanny in its intensity, terrible in its quiet power. The sergeant could feel it beating at him in silent waves, and although not at all an impressionable character, he could not help but shiver. For a moment, the gendarmes stood paralyzed, while the uncanny whisperings of the mob hissed in their ears like the sigh of a poisoned sea. Then professionalism came to the sergeant's rescue, and his mind began to function again. By no means could this tiny squad deal with the sinister mob in Aether Street. It would take a regiment of the Royal Guardsmen for that, or better yet, the crowd queller. In view of the situation, a dignified but very prompt departure was more than advisable. But the house itself, with its blood-stained contents, could not be left open to the inspection and tampering of the populace. All normal standards of procedure required him to assign a couple of men to guard the Haru dwelling, but these were not normal circumstances, and common sense informed the sergeant that such a command would sacrifice the lives of the men he selected to leave behind. Yet how could he avoid it? He would look like a gutless fool, he reasoned, if he slunk away, demoralized by a crowd that had as yet offered no concrete opposition. How could he explain his misgivings to his superiors if it came to that? How could he describe the tingling of his nerves, the twitch of his muscles, the sense of impending doom? They would think him a coward, a girl. Why expose himself to censure, even reprimand? Sheer foolery. He drew a breath, 
prepared to issue appropriate commands, met the eyes of the chosen men, perceived the knowledge there, and checked. When he spoke, it was only to order retreat. The gendarmes marched off, dragging Madame Heru with them. The mob allowed them to depart. The toxic human ocean parted, and the gendarmes hurried for their station house. The uniformed men were hardly out of sight before the citizens stormed the Haru house, bursting in to discover the corpses of four unarmed young Niryanistas, one of them shot in the back. Word of the massacre spread quickly among the assembled citizens. Word rushed like water down Aether Street and out into fetid Paradise Square and beyond, swiftly flooding the wines and alleys of the 8th District, whose residents responsively came flocking. And the tale lost nothing in the telling, expanding within minutes from ugly incident to full-scale atrocity. It was said that a score of Nereenistas, some of them women, had been cut down like weeds. It was said that the women had been violated, the men tortured and mutilated by gendarmes. It was said that the 8th District, hotbed of conspiracy and rebellion, had been targeted for reprisal. An attack by the Vonerish Guard, backed by the Herbanese mercenaries, was imminent. The neighborhood was to be razed. Tales raced and bounded, sprouted dark pinions and flew, and the citizens came in search of the source. Time passed, and the crowd continued to grow until narrow Aether Street could no longer contain it all, and the overspill began to clog the square beyond. Save for a continual, muted muttering, the citizens were uncharacteristically quiet. The exact nature of the force drawing them in upon that spot was not entirely apparent, but the force was very strong. As the hours passed and the night deepened, but not in that place, for a multitude of lanterns and torches maintained an artificial orange dusk. The citizens still came, until it became apparent that the very fact of the crowd's existence was in itself a stimulus to further growth. Many new arrivals professed ignorance of the deaths in their neighborhood. They came because they had heard that the 8th District was up in arms. They had heard that the district was on the march. They came to lend their aid in the great, if unspecified, endeavor. The hours lengthened, the tales flew, the crowd expanded. Growth ceased around midnight. There came a lull, a lessening of emotional intensity, a natural pause, during which a number of citizens, tired and directionless, or else fearful, quietly returned to their homes. Most remained, however, many lying down to sleep, heads pillowed upon folded jackets, upon their companions' laps, upon the very cobbles. Dawn found them out on the street. With the coming of the light, activity resumed, and the true character and purpose of the gathering began to emerge. A majority of citizens, it seemed, expected an attack upon the 8th District, primed by tales of slaughter and mayhem in Aether Street, Accustomed to brutality and stringent repression, they found nothing strange or incredible in the notion of gendarmes, guardsmen, and foreign mercenaries waging war upon them. In terms of their own experience, 
such abuse upon a lesser scale was predictable and ordinary. But on this autumn day, here in the worst slums of Shireen, the popular response was far from ordinary. For it was on this day that the citizens, swayed by a variety of forces whose nature they themselves did not truly understand, finally banded together to resist. The assorted weapons, the battered swords, lances, pitchforks, truncheons, and, and even a few rusty fusils that so many of them carried bore testimony to the quality of their determination, if not its source. If questioned, they would have cited the need to defend themselves, their families, and homes. Many would have cried out for justice, liberty, fair dealing, and reform. Many would have fulminated against the gendarmes, the guardsmen, the exalted, and the king, and some might have spat on the ground, mouthing obscenities straight out of neighbor Jumal. But none of this would adequately have explained the rush of common emotion, the sudden, intense solidarity, or the universal awareness that the time was now. The morning sun climbed, and news of the arming of the 8th District galloped through Shireen, even so far as the mansions of the Parabo and the Avenue Princess Royal, even so far as the Bivier itself, whose inhabitants shrugged and went on about their business. With the coming of the light, the crowd resumed its growth, now expanding to fill Paradise Square. The citizens, although nervously restive, as yet lacked direction. No clear-cut purpose, no definite leadership had emerged. This began to change around midday when a large, formidably armed contingent of gendarmes attempted to force passage through the crowd to Aether Street and the Herod dwelling. Unanimously uncooperative, the citizens opposed their advance, presenting a wall of solidly packed bodies, resilient and impossible to breach. The gendarmes did not waste much time trying. Following a couple of unsuccessful attempts, they withdrew, pursued by the hoots and catcalls of the victors. The brief confrontation stirred passions. The crowd churned, still uncertain but no longer quiet. A few of the most zealous ideologists stood up to exhort and harangue. A few of the most practical realists ganged up to break into a nearby armorer's shop commandeering and swiftly distributing the contents. A few weak vessels grew fearful and went home, but only a very few. Their places were quickly filled by new arrivals. A growing uneasiness, an irritability born of suspense, confusion, inactivity, and frustration began to stir the assembled ranks. Fearful imagination ran riot, while impatience and resentment mounted. Fistfights broke out here and there. A couple of hours later, a perfectly tangible object of hostility finally presented itself. A company of the Vonarish Guard appeared at the edge of Paradise Square. Speaking from horseback, their captain commanded the citizens to disperse. A concerto of mocking howls answered him. He repeated the command and a demon's chorus drowned his voice. Someone hurled a glass bottle that shattered at his horse's feet. 
Struggling to control the snorting, dancing animal, the captain barked an order. The guardsmen leveled their muskets, and dead silence fell over Paradise Square. A third command to disperse, perfectly audible this time. No reply and no compliance. The citizens had turned to stone. The captain gave order to fire. For an endless moment, the guardsmen wavered, facing the mob that contained their countrymen, friends, and kin. Then a small knot of them, moved by identical impulse, simultaneously upended their muskets and with the butts beat their commander to the ground. An unimaginable roar arose from thousands of throats. Cheering, screaming citizens surged forward to embrace and engulf the mutinous soldiers. The guardsmen flung their caps and insignia aside, their weapons they retained. Within seconds, they were absorbed, assimilated, an integral part of the crowd, which now, awakening to the reality of its own power, chose its direction at last. There were certain forceful, confident figures there, as in any group. Gifted with natural authority, they rose spontaneously to take command. With such leaders at its fore, and driven from behind by specters of fear, want, hatred, and desperation, the vast human mass began to move, slowly at first, but potent and unstoppable as a flow of lava. They were marching upon the Bavière. They meant to parley with the king himself, for the king, weak and irresolute though he was, nonetheless possessed a dull good nature. There wasn't an ounce of harm in him, and his failure to mitigate the ancient miseries of his people could be attributed to varied baneful influences, most notably that of his abominable wife. The answer, then, was to circumvent those influences, by force if need be, to go straight to Dunulus, confront him face to face. When the people themselves, without benefit of duplicitous intermediaries, spoke in their own behalf, the king would surely be willing to listen. And if by chance he was not, then it was time to twist his wrist. Through the streets the human lava flowed, through the 8th district, into Rat Town, up the boulevard Crown Prince, past Havelock Gardens, on along the road as far as Dunulus Square. Initially slow and somewhat halting, the advance gathered speed and momentum as the crowd itself increased in mass. All along the route, new members joined, some voluntarily, some caught up accidentally, and others literally dragged along by force. Some of them were singing as they walked, some exhorting or insulting inactive spectators, some shouting threats, some chanting popular slogans. The cacophony was unremitting, a roaring babble of human voices underscored by the tramp of marching feet, punctuated by the roll of drums and the clang of the toxin calling citizens to arms. The mob came at last to Dunulus Square, where progress abruptly halted. On the far side of the square rose the spear-pointed iron pale enclosing the Biviere and its grounds. The tall gates were shut and chained. Before the barrier stood ranged a troop of the royal guard, men whose loyalties lay unreservedly with the crown. 
Unlike their plebeian counterparts of the Vonerish Guard, these would not hesitate to fire into the Sherinian crowd. Silence descended, a few heartbeats worth of silence, broken by the thunder of hoofbeats on cobbles. Into the square, from out of a side street, or as it seemed, from out of nowhere, came pouring a company of masked horsemen. At their head rode a familiar nightmare figure, swathed in black and clawed in steel, the crowd-queller of Shireen. Instinctively, the nearest citizens drew back, quailed, but did not run. The habitual terror of exalted magic, so deliberately instilled and deeply ingrained in all commoners, moved but did not altogether rule them. Torn between mortal fear and equally intense determination, they stood poised for flight or mayhem, undecided and very delicately balanced. The horsemen drew rein. So silent had it grown that the equine snorts and pawing, the jingling of bridles and bits, were audible to thousands. In a voice that carried to every corner of Dunula's Square and beyond, one of the masked men ordered the crowd to disperse, the queller himself was voiceless, as always. Neither the command nor the threats that accompanied it drew any response. The silence continued unbroken as the queller brought forth a device slim and silvery, bright with glass and burnished metal, the infamous agent of magical destruction, known and feared by all. The steel talons played over lever, bolt, and whorl, the mechanism snapped, sudden as a pistol shot, and the nearest citizens flinched. A lens glowed with poison-colored light, and there was a collective sharp intake of breath. Blindness, deafness, paralysis, the masked spokesman reminded his listeners unnecessarily. The fane of Vodar's traitors is living death. Citizens, Leave this place while you may. It is your last chance to save yourselves. Still no response, other than a minute suggestion of contraction, as if the crowd drew silently in upon itself. Are you deaf there? The speaker inquired, impatient tone not altogether masking fear. No answer. The queller raised and aimed his weapon, sighting along the luminous barrel. Cries of alarm rose, and the nearest citizens strove to retire, but the press of the mob allowed for no retreat. Some beat and kicked their neighbors in a frantic effort to force passage. Others yelled and pleaded, clawed and even bit. There was a desperate scuffling in the forefront of the crowd, a spasmodic upheaval along the leading edge, a crushing compression of struggling bodies, all to little avail. The queller aimed carefully, pulled a lever, and a poison-colored spear of light shot from the barrel of his weapon. Across the few yards separating horsemen from mob flashed the luminous discharge, spreading and widening as it went to a cone large enough to bathe half a dozen citizens in pernicious radiance. Six citizens fell in stricken silence, eyes wide open but suddenly sightless, ears untouched but deadened, 
limbs unmarked but petrified, consciousness intact but permanently dudgeoned, all aspects of the disaster exactly as predicted. Screams of terror and fury arose, and the crowd convulsed, its members seething in directionless frenzy. As they roiled, shrieking and staggering, shoving and clutching and tearing upon each other, the queller fired again, and four more victims fell. Now the citizens on the fringe of the crowd were in retreat, speeding for the safety of the side streets, but those on the leading edge were caught in the press and momentarily trapped. In horror, they watched the queller take leisurely aim. Those in the path of the destroying light shrieked and covered their eyes, some flinging themselves face down to the ground. Before a third luminous bolt was loosed upon them, the crack of a gunshot resounded through Dunula's square. No one knew for certain who had fired, and no one would ever know, for later on, many would claim the honor. Some coolly resolute or hysterically desperate citizen had shot at the crowd queller, and whoever it was had aimed badly. The queller was untouched, but his horse fell dead beneath him. The queller tumbled from the saddle. He struck the pavement hard, and the weapon flew from his grasp. Instantly he scrambled to his feet, and as he did so it became apparent for the first time that he was a person of no great stature. On horseback he had appeared gigantic in his great black cape and peaked headgear. Dismounted, he proved unexpectedly short and slight, indeed almost runtish. The queller sprang for his lost weapon. Before he could reach it, some anonymous citizen had scooped the device from the ground. Pistol shots spattered uselessly as the queller's minions fired upon the thief who, blessed with presence of mind, tossed the captured prize into the thick of the mob. A score of hands rose to catch it, and the queller's magical mechanism disappeared from view. The horsemen froze, aghast behind their masks. The queller himself drew a pistol, a weapon absurdly small and toy-like. The citizens surged forward, and the queller fired ineffectually. An instant later, they were upon him. If he cried out, no one heard him. The queller went down, sucked into a maelstrom of rage and violence. Within the space of a gasp, they had torn away his hood, his mask, and robes, revealing a meager body and a youthful, astonished face. Truncheon-bearing fists flailed, booted feet swung, and the queller writhed and twitched briefly, split lips gaping to reveal fashionably emerald-flecked teeth. Agony concluded swiftly, and the queller expired, oblivion smoothing the features that all the court would have known, the features of Vecchi Viceroy, crowd queller of Shireen. The citizens did not recognize the face, and if they had, it would scarcely have mattered, for all other considerations paled into insignificance in the light of one extraordinary fact. The ancient magic of the exalted class had been resisted and conquered, conquered by simple, mundane, physical force. Never before had such a thing happened, and never had the commoners fully believed that it could Many had suspected as much, of course. 
Skeptics had whispered their doubts and questions for generations. Of late, Huis Velour had publicly derided the potency of exalted magic, and Velour's influence was vast. Burgeoning popular cynicism was not in itself sufficient, however, to banish ancient fears. Only material proof could do that. The deep-rooted terror of centuries still lingered, and the superstitious certainty of exalted superiority had never been truly dislodged until now. The sight of the crowd-queller of Shireen stretched dead upon the cobbles furnished at last the tangible refutation of exalted invulnerability, and every citizen present recognized it as such. The revelation united them as never before. The same furious triumph burned in every brain. A roar of exultation arose, and the crowd rushed for the paling. Bereft of their leader, the masked horsemen scattered, and the delirious mob swept the width of Dunulus Square. The royal guardsmen fired a volley, and the advance scarcely faltered. Moments later, the soldiers were overwhelmed, smothered and crushed by a force they had never thought to encounter. It took but an instant to beat the lock and chain from the great iron gates. The lock gave way, the gates swung wide, and a boiling torrent of humanity poured into the royal enclosure. Along the white drive gushed the human tide, up the rise to the Bivier itself, whose gilded portal was closed and uselessly barred. They broke down the door within seconds. A squad of servants gathered at the entry furnished brief resistance, but most of these unfortunates were swiftly slaughtered. Surviving retainers fled, and the mob howled in like a whirlwind. Sleep tight, dear.